0: Spectrum's next. Welcome to Spectrum. The Science and Technology Show on KALX Berkeley, a bi weekly 30 minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news.
1: Good afternoon. My name is Brad Swift. I'm joined today by Spectrum contributors Rick Karnaski and Lisa Katovich. Our interview is with Jeff Silverman, a recent Ph.D. in astrophysics from UC Berkeley, and Nicholas McConnell, a Ph.D. candidate unscheduled to be awarded a Ph.D. in astrophysics by UC Berkeley this summer. Jeff and Nicholas have generously agreed to help Spectrum present a three-part astronomy survey explaining the big ideas, recent experiments, collaborations, and improvements in observation technology that are transforming astronomy. This is part two of three, and in it we discuss supernovae, and black holes. Jeff, would you please start part two explaining supernovae?
2: Observations of exploding stars, these supernovae, have been going on for thousands of years. Whether or not we knew what we were looking at for most of that time, we now know that those were exploding stars, something that I did my PhD thesis work on as well. I want to talk about uh, two exploding stars in particular that were found uh, in 2011. The first one I'll, I'll talk about was found in late May, early June last year. It was found by a handful of amateur astronomers, which is, they find maybe 100 supernova per year. This has been going on for about a decade or so. Uh, This one in particular, however, was so young and new that... Somebody had emailed somebody who had emailed somebody who had actually tweeted about this new supernova. And so I got forwarded a tweet that said there's a new supernova in this very nearby galaxy and I happened to be using the Keck telescope, one of the biggest optical telescopes in the world, controlling it from UC Berkeley, saw this in my inbox and... We pointed at this supernova. Uh, we were the first ones to classify what kind of exploding star it was, confirm that it was indeed an exploding star and not some other uh, asteroid that was just along the line of sight in the way or something else. Uh, and so that was, as far as I know, the first time that a supernova was ever classified based on a tweet. The other supernova I want to talk about, sort of the opposite end of having amateurs looking at a handful of galaxies. Uh, I'm part of a large international collaboration known as the Palomar Transient Factory, PTF. And this collaboration uses a telescope down in San Diego to automatically monitor a bunch of these galaxies, run these big computer programs to try and find if there's a new supernova, a new bright spot in any of the images. And this has been running for about two years now, and we've been tweaking the algorithms to get faster and faster detections of these new spots. And so in August of last year, there was some images taken in San Diego. Dr. Peter Nugent, a professor in the astronomy department, was going through some of the newest candidates of what the computer program spit out and saw what looked like a very good supernova candidate in another very nearby galaxy, a different one, but about the same distance, 20 or so million light years. We had an image from the night before that was very good, and there was absolutely nothing at that position. So this clearly looked like a brand new spot. It couldn't be that old. So he immediately gets on the email list for this international collaboration. This was sort of the afternoon in California, but it was already nighttime in the eastern hemisphere, and we have collaborators who use telescopes in the Canary Islands, so they point to it. They got not a great observation, but an observation that confirmed there was something there, and it was probably one of these exploding stars. By the time that they had worked on their data and emailed us, it was already nighttime in California and Hawaii. So we had the Lick Observatory telescopes out in San Jose, as well as the Kecks in Hawaii pointing at this and absolutely confirming that it it was a supernova. And within a few weeks, we had already written a bunch of papers looking at the data very carefully, and we had actually found this supernova 11 hours after it exploded. So one of the earliest detections of an exploding star ever, people had speculated what you might see that early, and we actually got to throw out a lot of people's models saying we didn't see these things that you predicted possibly confirming some other predictions at this early time. And this thing is still bright. Uh, At its brightest, you could see it in a small backyard telescope or good binoculars from the Oakland Hills. Uh, I saw it with my own eyes through a telescope, which was awesome. I think, just an amazing, amazing proof of concept or success story of this huge collaboration. Without the the algorithms to, to run this quickly, we wouldn't have realized it was there until days later. Without an international collaboration of friends expanding the globe, we wouldn't have been able to track it and confirm that it was a supernova so quickly and so early and easily.
3: So if I can ask, what's the biggest mystery about the way stars explode that you help solve by knowing about a supernova just a few hours after an explosion has actually
2: happened? Well, solve is a strong word in science, but we can at least help get towards the truth, as my advisor likes to say. This one that was discovered by the Palomar Transient Factory in August is a specific kind of supernova that should have a very consistent amount of energy, sort of, you can think of it as a 100-watt light bulb. It has the same amount of energy output always, basically. So if you see it's very, very faint, it must be very, very far away. If you see it's very, very bright, it must be very, very close, because it's sort of each of these objects has the same amount of light coming out of it. And so we can measure very accurately how bright they are. We can compare to what we know they should be, how bright they should be. We get a very accurate distance measurement to all of these different supernova. And figure out very accurate distances, how that distance has changed with time. And this is, in fact, how the accelerating expansion of the universe was discovered in the late 90s using these types of supernovae, which, I will plug, did win the Nobel Prize last year for physics, and we're all very proud of that. Saul Perlmutter up at the Berkeley Lab was one of the winners, and many of our group here at Berkeley and other places have collaborated on those projects over the years. So one thing that we aren't quite sure of, even though these are very, very consistent explosions, we've observed them for a long time, we don't actually know the details of what stars are involved in the original explosion. We have some idea that a very dense star called a white dwarf, made of mostly carbon and oxygen, is blowing up. What exactly is around that star that's helping it blow up by actually feeding it some extra material and then pushing it over a limit to explode, we're a little bit unclear. And so since the star that is feeding the mass to the white dwarf should be very close by, they should be right near each other, one of the best ways you're going to observe it is right after the explosion. The explosion goes off, the light and energy from that explosion could interact with the donor star that's right next door, and then very quickly the explosion explosion's expanded much further beyond that neighboring star, and then it's sort of just hidden until either much, much later or perhaps never. And so by observing this supernova back in August, 11 hours after the explosion, and then taking subsequent observations sort of for the following few days, we could rule out certain ideas of what that other star could be. There are very strong predictions. You should see some extra light in certain ways if you had a certain type of star sitting there, and we didn't see that. So it must be a very small star, maybe something like the sun, maybe something like two times the mass of the sun. This is Spectrum on KALX Berkeley,
1: 90.7 FM. We're talking with Jeff Silverman and Nicholas McConnell about supernovae and black holes. So the the supernova is an explosion Mm -hmm. of uh, carbon and oxygen, you were saying. That's correct. What's the relationship of those explosions, supernova, to the black holes that were now discovered to be at the heart of every galaxy?
2: So black holes come in a few different flavors, Uh, certain kinds of supernovae, uh, not the the white dwarf carbon-oxygen ones I was talking about, a different flavor of supernova that come from very massive stars, sort of ten times the mass of the sun or bigger. They do explode as a different kind of supernova, collapse on themselves, and can create black holes. The black holes end up weighing something like a few times the mass of the sun, maybe up to 20, 30 times the mass of the sun at the most. But those are sort of just kind of peppered throughout galaxies. What we've found over the past few decades and done a lot of work on lately is these supermassive black holes that can get up to hundreds of millions or billions of times as massive as the sun. And those are found in the cores of galaxies as opposed to kind of peppered throughout them. And so there probably is a different formation mechanism. that's still a very open question how you make these giant black holes, but they're many, many orders of magnitude bigger than the ones that come from supernovae.
3: Uh, and, and I'd actually say, and this is possibly a good segue, that some interesting observational progress is being made on which the most likely mechanisms are for forming these so-called seed black holes that eventually grew into the monsters that we now observe at the centers of most galaxies in our own universe, in our current universe. So was
1: that a big shift then, the the idea of these supermassive black holes?
3: There's possibly a, a, a complicated relationship between the black hole at the center of the galaxy and the galaxy itself. The black hole's gravity is not sufficient to hold the entire galaxy together. Even though it is an extremely massive object and very near to it, there's extremely powerful gravitational forces. Galaxies are so large and so extended that out in the, the normal regions of the galaxy, out near where the sun orbits in the Milky Way galaxy, the fact that our Milky Way has a central black hole doesn't have any direct impact on our lives as the sun orbiting in the galaxy. On the other hand... If you consider the life cycle of a black hole starting from when it is formed from some seed object or birth process relatively early in the universe and evolving all the way toward our present day universe over more than 10 billion years, black holes have very interesting variations in what they're doing over the course of their lifetimes. In particular, when a black hole comes into proximity with a lot of gas, the gas spirals down and is funneled basically into the black hole. And whereas some of the gas goes into the black hole and is never heard from again and increases the mass of the black hole, a lot of the gas on its way down heats up and releases tremendous amounts of light. Because it takes time for light to travel the distance between the object emitting the light and us, some of the furthest and therefore youngest things that we see corresponding to very early times in the universe are in fact black holes that are swallowing tremendous amounts of gas. And some interesting discoveries that have happened recently is astronomers have been using different observational techniques to push further and further back into the universe's past, finding more and more distant black holes, swallowing gas, and learning about the universe at earlier and earlier times based on these observations. And I think the current record holder now is a black hole that lived about 800 million years after the Big Bang which translates to almost 13 billion years, 13,000 million years before our present day now. So looking that far back in time, we can know, first of all, that these tremendous black holes exist that early in the universe. And we can actually, using techniques that follow up on the initial discovery and try to get more detailed analysis of them, we can make estimates of how massive they are. And in the case of the one that occurred when the universe was only 800 million years old, we learned that that black hole is far more massive than the black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy, about as massive as some of the most massive black holes that we've observed today. Um, So at least in some cases, black holes appear to have been seeded by things that were relatively small, bigger than the tens of solar masses that Jeff mentioned, but maybe a few thousand solar masses. And yet in the very earliest stage of the universe, they were able to grow tremendously fast and actually gain a ton of mass early in the universe and then may have lived more peacefully throughout most of the duration of the universe.
1: You're listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley 90.7 FM. Today we're talking with Jeff Silverman and Nicholas McConnell, both astrophysicists were discussing
3: supernovae and black holes. This is part two of a series of three. Another interesting outcome of looking at supermassive black holes early in the universe is it's often easier to see them far away than it is nearby, because when they're far away and we see them, that's because they're swallowing a lot of gas. Many of the galaxies in today's universe don't have gas near their black holes. The black holes are quiet, uh, and in fact, you have to make very, very precise measurements of stars orbiting in their gravitational field to even know that a black hole is there. So one of the mysteries that had been going around for a while is if you believe the masses of black holes very early in the universe and you see these tremendously early things, but you want to know where are they now. They've had 13 billion years to evolve what kind of galaxies do these black holes live in today? Then you need to look in the nearby universe and try to find their quiet, ancient remnants. And recently, along with a couple other researchers at UC Berkeley, some other researchers around the country, my team discovered the two most massive black holes that we know about in today's universe. Black holes more than 10 billion times the mass of our sun, more than 2,000 times the mass of the black hole at the center of the Milky Way. And because these are the most massive black holes that we know about in today's universe, uh, and they roughly correspond to the estimated masses of the most massive black holes that we observed very, very early in the universe. We think we're beginning to answer the question of what kind of environment do these very young black holes actually end up in after the entire history of the universe between them.
2: If I could ask a question, do you see other properties of the galaxies that are now hosting these most massive black holes that are different than other nearby galaxies that may have less massive black holes, something like the Milky Way size. One interesting
3: thing about the galaxies that we looked at is that they're also anchoring large galaxy clusters. And so specifically, we found the most massive black holes at the centers of galaxy clusters. Now, that's not a perfectly robust result, because to be perfectly honest, we started by looking in the centers of galaxy clusters. And so we haven't done a wide sample of other galaxies in other environments, but it's possible that there is an environmental effect based on not only the galaxy that the black hole resides in, but the overall neighborhood of how many galaxies are around that central object that may have something to do with the final mass of its black hole.
1: And where do you go with this research now, Nicholas? Are there specific experiments? Are you relying on certain data? Where where are you drawing
3: this information from? So we use data from a few different telescopes. Because these galaxies are distant and we're trying to look at stars in a very small region of space, we rely on very large telescopes to give us good light collecting power and good spatial resolution. So we use the Keck telescopes in Hawaii. Uh, We also use the Gemini telescopes in Hawaii and Chile. And there's a telescope in Texas that we've done some work with. And we are trying to use these telescopes to find black holes in as many galaxies as the telescope committees will allow us to look at. Uh, So each semester, with the generosity of of getting observing time, we're able to look at two or three more galaxies. Um, And hopefully over a few years, we'll have a good dozen or so objects that we can search directly for the most massive black holes, in addition to a few dozen that have been discovered by other teams throughout the world over the last 10 years or so.
1: And that really is one of the big limiting factors, isn't it? The access to the equipment, because there's so much going on in astronomy. Everybody's in the queue.
2: Yeah, that's right. Uh, Just like most scientists apply for Amounts of funding from various organizations, astronomers do that, in addition to applying for telescope time. The oversubscription rates for many of the biggest telescopes, the Hubble Space Telescope, the Keck telescopes, is something like 8 to 1, 10 to 1. So the total number of requested hours is something like 8 or 10 times the number of nighttime hours there are in a semester or in a year. So it's, it's very much like a funding situation and there's so many nighttime hours and there's so many telescopes in the world. It's very competitive and we're very lucky when we do get access to these huge telescopes with amazing instruments and computing power. How does that allocated time work when you want to make observations within a couple hours of something that you've just heard about? So that's a great question. There's been something uh, that has been used by astronomers over sort of the last decade, but really a lot in the last five years, called target of opportunity observations, TOOs as we call them. And it's sort of in addition to or, or separate from your standard classically scheduled nights where You will use the telescope on this night. You can also apply if you have a good science case, which many of us do, especially for these kind of exploding stars that go off and we want to look at them very quickly. You can apply for time that is allocated through this TOO program. And basically what it is, is the telescope committees have said, okay, you get so many times to interrupt any observer and say, you have to go look at this. And as an observer at that observatory, you know that that's part of the program and that at any point, somebody could call you and say, drop what you're doing and go move over to this. And many times people want to do the best science and are very happy to help out. And oftentimes they'll be offered co-authorship or at least acknowledged to you know, thanking them for their help. Uh, Certainly for these two supernovae I spoke about earlier, we definitely used our target of opportunity, and they did turn out to be these very interesting supernovae.
1: That concludes part two of our astronomy series. Be sure to join us in two weeks when we discuss dark energy or dark matter in part three. regular feature of Spectrum is to mention a few of the science and technology events happening in the Bay Area over the next few weeks. Rick Karneski and Lisa Katovich join me for the calendar.
0: The Fix-It Clinic will be held on Sunday, March 25th at the Lawrence Hall of Science in Berkeley from 1 to 4 p.m. Bring your broken, non-functioning things, electronics, appliances, computers, toys, and so on, for assessment, disassembly, and possible repair. We'll provide workspace specialty tools and guidance to help you take apart and troubleshoot your item. Whether we fix it or not, you'll learn more about how it was manufactured and how it worked. This is a family friendly event. Children are heartily invited. This event is included in admission to the Lawrence Hall of Science.
1: The Mount Diablo Astronomical Society holds its general monthly meetings the fourth Tuesday of each month, except for November and December. At the March 27th meeting, UC Berkeley professor Jeff Marcy will speak about the future directions in extrasolar planet investigations. The meeting begins at 7.15 p.m. and lasts until 9.30 p.m. The event will be held at the Concord Police Association facility, 5060 Avila Road in Concord. The society website is mdas.net.
4: The Computer History Museum's speaker for March 28th will be New York Times magazine writer John Gertner, who will talk about his book, The Idea Factory, Bell Labs and the Great Age of American Innovation, to KQED's Dave Iverson. Bell Labs was the most innovative production and research institution from the 1920s to the 1980s. At its peak, Bell Labs employed nearly 15,000 people. 1,200 had PhDs. 13 would go on to win Nobel Prizes. These ingenious, often eccentric men would become revolutionaries and sometimes legends, whether for inventing radio astronomy in their spare time and on the company's dime, riding unicycles through the corridors, or pioneering the principles that propel today's technology. Bell Labs combined the best aspects of academic and corporate worlds, hiring the brightest and usually the youngest minds, creating a culture and even architecture that forced employees in different fields to work together. In virtually complete intellectual freedom, with little pressure to create money-making innovations. In Gertner's portrait, we come to understand why both researchers and business leaders look to Bell Labs as a model and long to incorporate its magic into their own work. The talk starts at 7 at the Computer History Museum, 1401 North Shoreline Boulevard in Mountain View. Visit www.computerhistory.org to register.
0: Thursday, April 4th, from 3 to 4 p.m., Andy Grove, co-founder and former CEO of Intel, will speak on the UC Berkeley campus. His talk is titled, Of Microchips and Men, Tales from the Translational Medicine Front. Andy Grove had a major influence on the ascent of microelectronics. Can a similar technological advance be achieved in medicine? He will discuss how we might open the pipeline to get life-changing technologies to market without increasing the cost of care. This event will be at the Sibley Auditorium in the Bechdel Engineering Center on the UC Berkeley campus.
4: The Marin Science Seminar brings local engineers, physicians, computer programmers, and research scientists to speak to high school students and other interested people. It happens six Wednesdays per semester, 7.30 to 8.30 p.m., at the Terra Linda High School in San Rafael, in the Physiology Lab 207. The guest for April 4th's meeting is the lead of Pixar's research and future Spectrum guest, Tony DeRose. He will present on Math in the Movies. Filmmaking is undergoing a digital revolution brought on by advances in areas such as computer technology, computational physics, geometry, and approximation theory. Using numerous examples drawn from Pixar's feature films, this talk will provide a behind-the-scenes look at the role that math plays in the revolution. Visit www.marinscienceseminar.com. Now news with Rick, Lisa, and myself. Last September, the OPERA experiment, located under the Gran Sazo Mountain in central Italy, reported measuring neutrinos moving at faster than the speed of light from CERN in Geneva, Switzerland. The Icarus experiment, located meters away from OPERA, has published a preprint on the archive on March 15th showing that neutrinos move at speeds close to the speed of light, but that there is no evidence that they exceed it. Opera's measurement was conducted with 10 microsecond pulses, while Icarus was conducted with pulses that were only 4 nanoseconds, 2,500 times shorter. This led to far more accurate timing measurements. Opera had claimed neutrinos arrived 60 nanoseconds before would be predicted, but scientists had remained skeptical, in part due to issues with timing. Borexino, Icarus, LVD, and Opera... We'll all be making new measurements with pulse beams from CERN in May to give us the final verdict.
0: According to TechnologyReview.com and the IAEA website, the disaster at Japan's Fukushima Daiichi plant a year ago prompted nations that generate atomic power to re-examine the safety of their reactors and even re-evaluate their nuclear ambitions. Several countries have completely changed course. Japan has taken offline 52 of its 54 reactors, and the future of nuclear power there is extremely uncertain. Germany shut down seven reactors, also elected not to restart another that had been down for maintenance, and plans to decommission its remaining nine reactors by 2022. Italy, Switzerland, and Mexico have each retreated from plans to build new nuclear plants, and Belgium's government, which took over in 2011, wants to make the country nuclear free by 2025. Several other economically developed countries, including the U.S., the United Kingdom, and France, are still generating roughly the same amount as they were before the Fukushima disaster and maintain modest plans for future construction of additional reactors. But the future of nuclear power in the developing world is a different story. According to the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, Forty-five countries are now considering embarking on nuclear power programs, as Vietnam, Bangladesh, United Arab Emirates, Turkey, and Belarus are likely to start building this year, and Jordan and Saudi Arabia following in 2013. As of this week, the IAEA reports 63 new reactors under construction in 15 countries. The top constructors are China, with 26, Russia with 10, India with 7, and South Korea with 3. The remaining 11 countries are building one or two reactors.
1: TechnologyReview.com reports that researchers at Microsoft have made software that can learn the sound of your voice and then use it to speak a language that you don't. The system could be used to make language tutoring software more personal or to make tools for travelers. In a demonstration at Microsoft's Redmond, Washington campus in early March, Microsoft research scientist Frank Sung. Showed how his software could read out text in Spanish using the voice of his boss, Rick Rashid, who leads Microsoft's research efforts. In a second demonstration, Sung used his software to grant Craig Mundi, Microsoft's chief research and strategy officer, the ability to speak Mandarin. Frank Sung created the system with his colleagues at Microsoft Research Asia, the company's research lab in Beijing, China. The system needs around an hour of training to develop a model able to read out any text in a person's own voice. That model is converted into one able to read out text in another language by comparing it with a stock text-to-speech model for the target language. Individual sounds used by the first model to build up words using a person's voice in his or her own language are carefully tweaked to give the new text-to-speech model a full ability to sound out phrases in the second language. Sung says that this approach can convert between any pair of 26 languages, including Mandarin Chinese, Spanish, and
4: Italian. Nature News reports that researchers from the University of California, San Francisco, and the Howard Hughes Medical Institution's Janelia Farm Research Center near Ashbourne, Virginia, have found that male fruit flies are more likely to choose to consume alcohol if they have been sexually rejected by females. The key seems to be in neuropeptide F, which is generated as a reward for either sex or alcohol consumption. When flies denied of sex are given neuropeptide F, they avoid alcohol. In mammals, neurotransmitter Y might act similarly. For more information, you can see their article in the March 15th issue of Science.
1: Shows are gradually being made available online at iTunes University. Go to itunes.berkeley.edu and click through to Berkeley on iTunes. Then search for Calx 90.7 FM to find the Spectrum Podcasts. occurred during the show is from a Lostana David album titled Folk and Acoustic made available by a Creative Commons License 3.0 attribution
0: Thank you for listening to Spectrum If you have comments about the show please send them to us via email Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com Join us in two weeks at this same time.